netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, and welcome to this FX Podcast. I'm Mike Seymour, and uh, kind of echoes of RC Podcast past, we are doing another in our series of examining really interesting areas in the industry from the point of view of not trying to sell or flog anything, but with a panel of experts. And I'm joined now by uh, DOP uh, and good friend, Ben Allen. How are you? Good, thanks, Mike. And Jason Wingrove, director and sometimes DOP as well. Uh, How are you? Very good, very good. Thank you. Good to see you both. So basically what I thought we'd do is have a chat about basically camera tech. And I I think what's really interesting about this is, of course, Jason, you and I used to do um, the RC and we used to go into a lot of stuff on that camera tech. And it struck me that one of the fundamental issues these days for somebody um, looking at this stuff is kind of what is the stuff that matters? Because I don't think it's any more, and I don't know, Jason, if you'll agree with me, I don't know if it's quite like it was before we were striving to reach a technical hurdle, it feels more like we can easily get to anything we want to do. It's just whether you want to spend the money and whether it's appropriate for the job. But do you feel like it's changed in that respect or is that just me? Are you still chasing that elusive format? Uh, look, I think, you know, as we sort of saw towards the end of, of the RC podcast, it's, we were at peak camera then for quite a while, I think, that, you know, uh, everything's amazing and no one's happy kind of thing. I think we were at, uh, uh, have been, I think still at, at great peak camera now. And I think really what it comes down to from one choice from one camera to another. And, and I guess, yes, I suppose to some degree, there's still an elusive chase for the ultimate camera is purely just that perfect combination of features and things. But, you know, I think the, perfect camera or near perfect camera isn't isn't very far away or is already in our hands i think but obviously everyone's different every camera is perfect for you know is has their own idea of a perfect camera but uh, i think yes it's it's getting harder and harder to you know complain about these things now everybody seems to really getting close to nailing it well ben i guess i should be clearer in what I'm talking about here because there's cameras and cameras for jobs that mm. are really depending on the job. So let's start with you. Like you're obviously doing feature film work and 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 sort of high-end work. What is your camera of choice? If you had any camera you could pick for any sort of, you know, sort of set of parameters on a feature, what would you be your sort of go-to one or two choices? Well, it, it really depends on what, what you're doing with the camera. I mean, it, we are absolutely sport for choice now. There's no two ways about it. And I guess one of the, the big things is uh, things like ergonomics and features and operational kind of aspects of it, I think, come into it at, at least as much as the specifications of once you get above a certain threshold of, of camera level. And so it, uh, it really becomes about what, you, what kind of environment you're shooting in and what kind of uh, work you're going to be doing with what sort of crew you're going to have. And so, for example, I think, um, uh, you know, if you look at the, the large format cameras, the uh, if you're shooting in a studio environment um, and, say, doing a virtual production thing, there'd be a, a very good case for a, an Alexa LF kind of with a full-size camera body. But if you're out in the field, small crew, moving fast, that's probably not, the the camera that you'd want in that environment you might be looking for something like a um a, a red or a mini lf or um uh or one of the black magic cameras 
And there's what I love at the moment is the choices that we've got about how you configure a production around the camera without compromising quality. And I think you look at, for example, um, shows like The Crown and uh, Queen's Gambit, which, you know, the, the Crown was shot on Sony cameras. There's none, to me, none of the telltale old-fashioned signs of the Sony camera <laughs> in there. Queen's Gambit, you know, is shot on red, but there's none of the telltale signs of a red camera there. And I think it just shows how far the technology has come to the point where, yes, the cameras might have a certain flavour, they might lean a little bit this way or that way, but basically you can, any of once you get above a certain level, any of those cameras, you can get whatever look you want out of them. But, Ben, you mentioned four camera make manufacturers then, right? Um, yeah. Alexa, Red, Blackmagic, and Sony. Uh, and I'm, there's a lot of other camera manufacturers, of course, but are they kind of like your four go-to things that I'd be kind of considering if you were sitting around a table discussing with a, a director as to sort of a project? Are those the sort of four most common yeah, absolutely. You know, personally, I, I'm very comfortable with the Blackmagic and the Arri cameras. Um, the feature that we've got in post at the moment was shot on a mixture of Blackmagic Ursa, Pocket 6K and Arri Alexa. And, uh, you know, that for me is personally a very comfortable place to be. And what's your go-to capture resolution? Like, do you want to capture just everything I can or like once I get to 6K, I'm kind of super happy or um, is there a... Yeah, I mean the I mean the Alexa um, is not a 4K camera, um, but you know putting that alongside high res images, it looks fantastic. Uh, we're doing 4K finish on the feature, and you know they intercut beautifully. Resolution is is a far more subtle and complex thing, I think, than it it looks on paper. So, Jason, what about for you? You do obviously a huge amount of commercials work and stuff. Like, what is your go-to kind of uh, rig, I guess, at the moment? Or what would be your ultimate camera if you could pick up anything for a sort of a standard type of TV, high-end TVC work that you do? Uh, well, I've, uh, I've owned my own gear. So, I, I, at the moment, I've actually shoo, scaled way down. I've got a Sony FX6 as my A camera and a Sony FX3 as my B camera because they kind of cut well together. They're essentially the same sort of thing. And as Ben mentioned, you know, Sony don't really have the Sony look anymore because they're basically, as of probably FX9, FX6s and, and A7S3s, they've sort of got rid of the problematic sort of greeny kind of weird tinge that uh, they had and basically have nailed it so that's part of the thing of like we're at peak camera now and and, and sort of almost indistinguishable look between say venice and uh, uh, alexas and even fx6 and and, and and the like so um i ultimately i'd love uh if i had a choice if i wasn't using my own gear and if you know ultimate funds were just sitting there um, Alexa Mini LF would be the ultimate sort of flexible thing, I think. Particularly if you do anamorphics, it's you know got a full full height sensor, as in you know like four by three for sensor for anamorphics, which you don't get in um, FX nines, FX sixes, and a lot of that sort of things. Obviously, once they once they get to once they get to um, a video camera, they basically you know crop the sensor down from all that meaning. They don't need that the full sort of four by three. Uh, the full 
um, still size sensor so they automatically crop it down which is okay for most things but if you want to do anamorphics you want a nice big high uh, sensor height so it would probably be a lovely set of anamorphics in a, a alexa mini lf but um, what i have works really really well some old contacts modified contacts lenses and yeah a very small very capable largely at least in a grading point of view, indistinguishable rushes and gradability from from you know the standard off the shelf Alexa. Did, have you gone smaller on any of the Sony's, like the FX three, for example? Yeah, FX three as well, which has been my like my B camera and for okay. gimbals and rigs and things. Yeah, um, like so. My next commercial, I've got um, you know obviously just regular stuff. That's you know just some regular shooting, but also I've got a rig a camera on the front of bottom of a car and i got to rig it on uh, overhead of someone in a bed so all that kind of stuff you just want something small and light and easy to rig so, so you're on and the six and the three is that right you're jumping yeah. into did you look at the yeah. nine so i thought you were talking about the nine and the six but you're doing the six and the three right? uh i kind of jumped i kind of missed out on the nine i had the fs7 for the fs7 mark one for the longest time yeah and it was great and i looked at what the a workhorse nine, camera but then that turned out to be basically yeah Basically, the FX6 came out, and to uh, to the chagrin of many FX9 owners, it's a much cheaper camera that basically um, almost sort of uh, trumps its um, uh, its specs and and its look and everything in in every almost every almost every department. There's there's obviously some stuff that FX9 can do that FX6 can't. But essentially, it's sort of, it's the six kind of sort of uh, jumped the shark a little bit. And, and, and even though it's a, it's down the food chain from the FX9, um, it, the FX9 at this stage is kind of showing its age and, and the FX6 is definitely sort of newer technology and you know, newer sensor and, and sensitivities and color signs. The, the Venice changed everything for them, basically. The Venice changed everything for them. Basically, they had some newer color science and they really nailed it. And they're basically out there in features, it's basically it's either LF or mini LF or the Venice are the two sort of heavy hitters. And uh, that has been a major badge of honor for, for, for Sony is that there, you know, a lot of uh, feature work is um, being done on, on the Venice and that technology and the color science has trickled down now. So since Venice, it, it's sort of been a benefit to the rest of the, the, the model range, really. I think the six is around ten grand, right? Just to give people an idea where it sits in the kind of uh, scheme of things. Something right? like that. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so can I shift gears for a second? Like one of the things that that we enjoyed discussing and hanging around uh, for hours in coffee shops, uh, arbitrating uh, arguments over, was shooting with. Um, digital SLRs. And so there was this whole thing back then, which was like, you know, you get a Mark III, uh, I'm sorry, I'm talking about a Canon now, and you'd uh, you get a, a camera that was basically a stills camera and you would use it as for stills, but, you know, it opened the door to doing really great video work and it was small, but because you were using stills lenses, you got good looks. And, and for many people, it was like a film school in a camera. Um, but then of course, there's this thing now where like I get really good images out of a uh, iPhone. And so my question is really has in the way that the sort of mini uh, portable little pocket cameras just died, the thing that you used to, you know, buy and put in your back pocket because you just have your phone with you now, how much is there validity in the uh, sort of DSLR stills and video kind of camera view, Jason? Like, do you, have one of those? Do you ever take one out? Do you have one and never use it? What where are you at? 
DSLR wise. Well, you could. I mean, FXC is essentially an uh, it's essentially an A7S Mark III with just you know with a bit of you know a few added tally lights and audio handle and stuff like that. So it's kind of a little bit more sort of video friendly ver- uh, DSLR. But do you have a shoot essentially, you can still essentially do shoot stills on it. I do have you? actually for stills and for recce because I've got that so set up ready to go with with transmitters and motors and things all over it. It's a pain to take it out of that rig and go and shoot stills with it and then put it back. So I have a, I just for stills I have a Sony A7C, which is it's fine, it's okay. Um, but I mean, I think yeah, I, I mean there's obviously still still definitely uh, a place for those. I don't I I, I don't uh, I I went to the A7 the FX3 because it was. It had the small compactness, but still, I could shoot stills if I wanted to. But it, it was basically—it's kind of a little bit more the way it's set up and its button arrangements and tally lights, and you know, it's—it's it's just a little bit better set up for video. Um, but at its heart, it is still an SLR. So we haven't still—we still haven't really. I mean, there's there's definitely some alternatives. There's the Red Komodo, um, is uh, definitely uh, I. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's definitely kicking some goals and winning. It's it's become um, because it's fairly affordable. It's become I think that 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 um, the five D Mark II for up and comers to to jump in and, and and graduate and grab that one and learning filmmaking as they go. Um, uh, I think it's you know because it's pretty affordable and it is much more of a dedicated um, cinema camera um it's yeah people have graduate you know have, have gravitated to it quite quite well so i think there's definitely there's enough alternatives out there now that are pretty small uh, obviously yes all the black magics that are um i don't think we're you know if you really want to just go shoot video then you don't need to you really don't need to struggle too much with a dedicated uh slr i mean the kimono is 6k right and uh global shutter which is nice um, it is, yes. It doesn't have any. The dynamic range isn't there compared to most of the other reds. That's um, yep. a joy to behold. It's tiny. It's fantastic. Uh, but you go anything over forty frames a second, and an incredible uh, image crop comes in, which I can't deal with personally. Uh, I like the opportunity of being able to shoot fifty or a hundred or something like, maybe at least fifty, um, without any image crop. You buy a large sensor camera for a large, you know, for the sensor. Um, Obviously, Komodo, Komodo is uh, only 735, but it is uh, Canon R mount, and there's you know, obviously great adapters out there which immediately can make it. You know, if you wanted to put boosters on, you can get full frame out of it. Uh, but for me, it's the dynamic range uh, lacking and the um, the crop on the slow mo. But uh, you know, it's been an absolute killer for Red. So many people have those cameras, and they were sold out for so long. And they're a crack, a tiny little thing. Amazing little beast. I just what about you, was... Ben? Do you have a stills camera? Do you have a I, thing I, I that you do, double? and I, I I upgraded my stills camera last year, and I, I I've only used it for time lapse since then. Ooh. <laughs> what did you upgrade to? Uh, it was just a, a 90D Canon, which is a Super 35 sized sensor, huh. and uh, because I wanted to use it with Super 35 lenses, and yeah. so um, yeah, it's it's a great little camera. And um, fantastic for time lapse. Like the um, the built-in time lapse capabilities are wonderful. Uh, you can do slow shutter. That's the main difference between the video cameras and 
the stills camera for time lapse and being able to do the really slow shutter for nighttime time lapse stuff. But apart from that, I just haven't actually needed to pull it out. Have you, did you actually look at or have you looked at the uh, R6 and the R5, the Canon oh, R5, yes. R6? The, the stills photographer, the behind the, the scenes stills photographer we had on the feature uh, yeah. had the, uh, the R5 as, as right. his main camera. And um, that he, seems he's, pretty sexy. <laughs> he was um, a Nikon guy from way back, and um, he saw the R5 and went, "Oh my God, this is the future!" and and jumped onto that. Um, and you know, he he got some amazing images with that. So I, I've already brought it up. I'm going to just close it out. Like, do we? I mean, I find myself getting amazing shots on my iPhone, which I've got. You know, like the newest sort of top of line 12 Pro Max, whatever it is. I mean, it's a bit bulky, but man, it shoots a dynamic range that's you know well, ridiculously above what it should be. <laughs> it's, it's bulky as a phone, but it's not bulky as an SLR. Very good point. <laughs> um, yeah, which is one of those things, isn't it? Like I thought you were going to say this earlier, Jason. The best camera is often the one you happen to have with you, um, not not the one that you own but is sitting in the shed. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely if you if you're going to do if we're going to do travel, remember travel. If we're going to do travel. Um, <laughs> It would be a hard thing to decide. Do you want to put up with the even small, you know, bulkiness of uh, even a small little, you know, um, little mirrorless compact versus uh, uh, just a good iPhone? You know, I mean, are you going to really, you know, with with computational photography, with all you know, with all the portrait modes and all that sort of stuff, are you going to really miss? not having that with you i guess it depends what kind of travel you're doing but for the average people who want to sort of maybe want to enjoy the experience rather than the you know the memory of lugging you want to have the memory on, of the but, place but away not from the memory travel, of all the gear away from travel let's talk about recce's right where actually you care about you know it's like professional use not just like you're on holidays which none of us are allowed to do anymore <laughs> but the uh, I mean, the thing with the iPhone is I can do a LiDAR scan of the setup at the same time, right? Like, I mean, it's more than a camera inherently. Yeah. It's connected to the internet. I can measure things using just the camera. I point at something, click mm -hmm. on it, drag around and measure that that's 12 feet, or I can do a whole LiDAR scan of it or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of uses. Even the for um, director's viewfinder and, and being able to take shots with that. Um, I, I found on the uh, on the feature, I was using it. We'd, we'd do a walkthrough with the actors. I'd use the CadRage app and had the the cameras that we were using loaded in there, the lens kit that we, had, we were using loaded in there, and I'd just walk around during rehearsal and go snap, 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 boom, boom, boom. Okay, so this on the 24 mil, that on the 85, and, and it made it very, very fast and efficient because I could just skim through those photos. And, you know, I had a, a traditional viewfinder there as well but it was it was better on the on the app on the iphone i just use like my a7c for a recce because it's full frame and i can use the same lenses on it and i can just wander around and shoot something that i know is going to be similar to uh when i use my other cameras um i don't do any of that fancy stuff you were talking about mike uh that sounds like i'm missing out a lot uh, i don't really uh, I do use, I, t I will take the phone, obviously, because it's my phone, never leaves you. But um, I use, will use it mainly for the sun seeker apps for just sun prediction and finding out when the sun, you know, when the sun's going to come through a certain window or, uh, you know, just because obviously when I've finished a recce, I'll get asked uh, by my first AD, 
scheduling wise, when, where do I want to be and when? So I'll, um, I'll have, I'll basically that'd be the main tool I'll, I'll use. I wouldn't be, I mean, and also the super wide, the point, whatever it is, the incredible wide on, on the max, we've got the same phone, I think, uh, Mike. Um, yeah, that super, the wide, the wide lens is brilliant for just capturing an entire room. But most of the time when I'm doing recce's, the last thing production want is for me and or me to, is to show stuff in a room or in a place that's not going to be in the shot because everyone goes, why is that there? And I don't like that. You know, I mean, just dealing with commercial clients, it's like, I don't like that window. And that's typically, you know, just I'll often be asked to even maybe go back and re-recce a place and just shoot or crop all the photos to just what we're going to see. So, um, yeah, shooting with the exact lenses and stuff is, is good. So I still need still need a, an, an SLR, but can't go anywhere without the, the sun sun path tools. I, I want to come back to Ben on a point, but before I do, just while I'm there, do clients care, uh, Jason, what camera you're shooting your their commercials with? Like, do they really, unless it's got like a number of like things on it, they don't feel like they're getting their money worth, or are they like informed enough now that they're like, I oh, don't no, give a shit. Actual clients, clients like you know whatever the blue chip, whatever they don't yeah. really care. Uh, agencies and or post-production people care about uh, resolution because they've all been caught on the hop with a, a shot that's too wide and they want to crop it in. So uh, the most I'd ever be asked about is uh, we're shooting 4K, right? That's about it. I mean, we never finish for commercials. I don't know anybody who's really finishing 4K commercials much. I think generally everything's going out 1080. So um, shooting 4K is, is uh, a good um basis so they don't really no they don't really care to be honest no i don't no so ben a question to you like we've discussed resolution but but the thing that i know you care about a lot is dynamic range and the ability to grade the images and stuff so yeah. starting with that iphone but then heading back to your normal work like that must be a major consideration for you what you can get out of the grade and uh, and you know the the look that you're managing to craft, offset with the complexity of shooting uh, and even actually reviewing high dynamic range footage. Yeah, absolutely. It's the the dynamic range and and how much flexibility you've got to manipulate that in in the grade is huge. It's a, a huge issue in terms of how much you can do creatively. And I think probably in many ways that's the the biggest limitation still of say the iPhone cameras it's not so much the camera itself and what it's capable of because they're quite amazing but because they're recording these highly compressed uh, formats um, h264 and h265 there's an inherent limitation in that uh, because of the, the the data rates and and the amount of compression involved and so that's where going to uh, the cameras recording say prores or or a raw format it gives you a lot more flexibility and a lot more options, um, particularly when you're working, say, in 4K, because the the artifacting um, from compression becomes a lot more noticeable at that level. So as a, uh, I'm going to play the role of cynic, <laughs> but surely you guys are really talented at what you do. So Ben, like, are you getting it? Like, why do you have to do so much work? Like, if it looks good for you on set, <laughs> you're happy. And if it doesn't look good, why don't you fix it on set? Like, why do you need, I mean, being cynical, but why do you need yeah, all this? Yeah. Flexibility? Do you not agree with your director on set? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's it's one of the things that there's there's a lot of misunderstanding um, even within the industry about just how much you can do creatively. It's not there's, there's like 
10% of it is fixing things. And then there's this huge scope to actually creatively craft the image beyond what you can do on set. Um, and it also allows you to work a lot quicker, a lot more quickly on set because you can you can go, okay, well, I know that's going to take, you know, we've talked about this many times. You can go, I know that's going to take me 20 minutes on set and it's going to take 30 seconds in the grade. So I'll do that in the grade and it's going to be better because I'll have more control. And that allows you to then focus on the things that you need to do on set that you can't do in the grade. So, so Jason, if it gives you more options, is that a good thing or is it like just cause the client to like keep going around in circles? You mean like HDR? Well, I mean, just generally, if you've got all this dynamic range and you can grade things completely differently, and I know that, you know, Ben's a wizard at, at, well, hang on, let me ask you this. Who's grading your material right now? Are you grading stuff yourself or are you going to a suite? I'm personally not. It's generally, yes, it would be uh, somebody either in the production house yeah. or a th- third party uh, professional grader. Yes. So, um, so- and yes, I'm always shooting like you know, S log three, et cetera. So I'm shooting flat images. Uh, no one's expecting my rushes to look uh, fantastic uh, out of the box, i.e. with Lux baked in or anything. Um, yeah. So I just shoot S log three and graders do what they will and you know make sure you've, you we've cho- you know, chosen cameras that have decent dynamic range to begin with but you're pretty modest in this respect because you could if you wanted to like i know you could um you know give incredibly detailed uh creating either instructions to somebody else or like you're, you're implying that they're taking that role uh almost like out of your hands but that's not the case i know that's not the case you care yeah, about no, most of the lot. time. Yeah, most of the time you'd be on, on a lot of the time you'd be particularly if you get an external. I mean, there's there's two things that happen a lot of the times with um, more and more hap- times is happening is uh, agencies are setting up or having in house their own production uh, post production companies, and that means the guy that cuts it is also the guy that sound mixes it or roughly sound mixes it and does all the titles, all the After Effects, does the supers, the graphics, and then when he's got time, he'll get around to grading it for you. Uh, and if I start to get involved, I'm just the fly on the ointment, getting in the way, slowing him up. And half the time, you know, I get a, a, a cursory few little comments about things. I mean, obviously, a lot of the time, we're lighting. I'm lighting it to look 90% right anyway. Um, and a lot of the time, you don't get the opportunity to have a crazy look um to do anything wild anyway so um a lot of the times it's it's probably 80 percent there anyway just with a just 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 put a night you know put a 709 latte over the top of the things and it's it's looking great already um if in so, doubt put a vignette on <laughs> <laughs> i can um, spot them isn't that i know you can hey, it, isn't it the case though that, that used to be an American thing where the director wasn't as intimately involved in the post uh, side of things? They like shot, Still and then the Australian is, yeah. was. Do you think it's going much more the American model then, or? Uh, no, I. I mean, you still definitely in terms of editing. Obviously, the American model still applies over there. Um, I think it's just more that the the, the the post as as things has got. Uh, obviously post has got easier and democratizing of, of resolve and, and um, how uh, efficient uh, the ba- even like a 2015 iMac with you know resolve is as democratized all of that stuff and you and made it easy for production companies to do uh, an agency to do exactly what I, what I said bring everything in-house and not have to you know re- go off to post 
you can be doing post in between while you're doing edits and you know a bit of sound and things they can do it in there in there you can have one guy doing everything um so i think it's um it's definitely uh it's we're still involved in the edit absolutely definitely here that 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 system does not that the editing system the american editing system does not apply here we definitely directors are 100% involved in the edit and because you're then obviously also involved in the presenting that edit to clients or to agencies and obviously so that you can be the bunny if they don't like something or you know obviously you're 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 intimately linked in with the footage so you're able to you know to suggest other things and creative changes um so yeah it's just that the coloring has uh taken a bit of a backseat um because partly because you know we're at peak camera and cameras are doing great images so you know people are kind of going yeah it looks great that's fine fabulous just slap ben, a laugh on it and it looks brilliant you, you over time ben have been involved in like writing sort of plugins effectively and doing sort of like yeah. you, for a long time so now today surely you you must get quite a lot of joy out of being able to because i know you do from time to time mm. grade your own material that must absolutely i you know i'm so over the last 10 years, I've graded probably 95% of what I've shot. So the grading for me is a huge part of, of what I do and it's a huge part of my thought process as a cinematographer is, okay, what do I want to be able to, to do with this in post? Where, where do I want to have the options of taking this? And so that influences a whole lot of things from camera choice and lens choice to recording format um, and, and even lighting. At times, I might decide to to be Can more conservative. Can I do a side so interject question? Then, are yeah. you grading, doing some grading on set, or creating your own LUTs in camera, or are you tweaking things and you know presenting grades or overall grades occasionally, doing your being your own uh, DIT? Yeah, I, I don't tend to do very much of that on set. Um, I'll often create a LUT in in pre pro, and 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 work with that work to the look. Um, but a lot of the time I also just work with the, the off the shelf 709 LUT and, and just know that I, I've, if I'm capturing this, then we're going to have options. And so a lot of that is to do with the, the directors that I'm working with. I'm not doing commercials so much these days, so it's not a matter of having, uh, the client and agency people looking at, uh, at what we're doing. So if I was doing that, you know, I'd, I'd probably be more inclined to be doing more in terms of processing on set. Hey, so what Having is your setup? That, what, just tell us what your setup is if people don't know because I've been lucky enough yeah. to visit your suite. So the the grading setup that we're working with at the moment is a, um, a 2019 Mac Pro uh, working on the Apple Pro Display XDR monitors, which are amazing. I mean, they're amazing HDR monitors, but they're also amazing um, SDR and digital cinema monitors. Um, because you can put them into the calibrated reference modes for those, um, and everything in DaVinci Resolve, and which is just uh, from from coming from the point you know you mentioned like 15 years ago having to write plugins to get the desktop grading to be functional, to have DaVinci Resolve and the full kind of DaVinci um, uh, set of tools available. Um, at, at your fingertips all the time is just an absolute joy. What panels or whatever have you got? Mm-hmm. I'm using the the mini panel, um, right. which is uh, I, I really love that panel. Uh, use that with a stream deck uh, for, for um, 
some additional functionality like um, memory recalls and storage, all that, which gets you, you know, well on the way towards what you can do with the um, the big panel. Um, I, I love the the footprint of the, uh, the the mini panel in terms of everything's just right there in front of you, and the panel basically just adapts itself to whatever function you're working with at, at that point in time. So we've discussed high dynamic range and we've discussed the camera tech and like how marvelous these cameras are, right? But the big missing part of the equation that I can hear people yelling at and as they're listening to this podcast is what about the bloody lenses? So so what lenses, Ben, were you shooting with recently and, and what lenses do you like to shoot with? And like how much is that? Because it used to be like, you know, you would really say, like I remember Jason and I in the back in the day would you know, discuss the cook look and, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like, does that play now or is it... Is it just ergonomics? No, it's definitely the look is a big part of it. And I think we are absolutely in the middle of the golden age of cinema lenses right now. Like it's we are so sport for choice and there, there are so many amazing options. Um, on the, the feature I've just done, because uh, we – we were shooting last year at the height of, you know, the, the early stages of COVID. So we were, we were limited in terms of numbers of people on set. We had to be very, very yep. manoeuvrable. And uh, so I needed a, a lot of lens options and very, very lightweight to be able to get them around in and out of locations. So I was using um, Rockinon Cine lenses because they're, you know, they're very small, lightweight lenses, but full manual control, uh, which is it's a big thing. Uh, so Jace- I like to work. Jace, uh, what's your lens porn? What's the thing that you're going to get excited about in lenses? Well, I'm still clinging to the full, big, expanded set of uh, old uh, contacts lenses I've had modified to have the sort of, you know, anamorphic kind of look, which, you know, still fools the, the professionals <laughs> who <laughs> consistently, uh, you know, think it looks like uh, anamorphic work. Uh, I think the goal probably would be if anamorphic, if anamorphic was uh, allowed, would be a set of um, Atlas Orion, the new silver series would be uh, incredible. Um, or the new uh, from uh, Euro- uh, Eastern European company called Zelmus make a, an incredible, uh, beautiful, uh, large, full format covering covering um, anamorphics with incredible minimal focuses. And you know all, all those lenses are getting quite small and compact. But as Ben said, if you want to just get spherical, small, compact light um, and not too contrasty and, you know, nice, flat, natural, sharp lenses, so spoiled. There are so many incredible things in Sigmas. And, yes, yeah, so the um, uh, I would, I'm, I'm not sure what, what my next choice would be if, if somehow my lenses get stolen because that's just com- in, incredibly spoiled and uh China is doing an incredible job of uh, taking a lot of the greats and then recreating those as well. One of the great ironies of where we're at with lenses is that a lot of the time you're actually paying more for imperfections, that you can get really clean, contrasty, sharp lenses. Very, They're very easily readily available. And what you're paying for is character on top of that. Yeah, actually character is becoming more and more accepted as a sort of, you know, in the past. Yeah, you'd want something that was now things like distortion and not so much chromatic aberration, but you know, distortion yeah. and little bits of warping and obviously flares and things are actually you know getting more and more acceptable. So, in fact, 
not just acceptable, but demanded by a lot of people. In fact, the hard decision between all the new batch of uh, incredibly crafted cinema lenses is is finding the ones that actually have the character. They all have Mm. a beautiful look and they're all sharp and, you know, will pass any test. But finding the ones in there that actually have some some character the maybe the the canon samir primes look really interesting to me but it's pretty subtle a lot of them it's like it's they're all so good it's like ooh, yeah. it's just you can pour over youtube tests in 4k for the rest <laughs> of your life and still never come quite to a, a decision it's uh it's uh never ending which is yeah. you know a good thing but uh yeah, yeah, yeah. character is character you can't beat and I think it's something a that hard. a lot of a lot of cinematographers are now using as it becomes a, a totally subjective personal stamp on the image right at the start before mm. it hits the sensor is that that choice of lenses or combination of lenses, and it's it's a way of of getting that extra layer of of, of you know personal impact on the image. So I'm going to ask you both this question. I'll start with Ben, but I want to ask you both the same question, which is if I'm come to you in whatever capacity and I'm talking about something that I want to look very cinematic, how much do you now say the things that are cinematic are not film related? They're uh, framing perhaps or staging or, or lighting things, but that the concept that it's cinematic, if I come to you as a client and say that in the meeting, your reg- like because I think ten years ago, if I said I wanted to look really cinematic, you'd think, well, it needs to look like it was maybe shot on film or at least have characteristics of a film. And yet, for a whole generation that grew up with digital cameras, like film isn't anything special. In fact, it's kind of soft. So, Ben, to you first, cinematic is that any way related to a concept of a film look or not? It can be. I, I find the the word cinematic is such a such a broad term. Now it gets used so <laughs> broadly to the extent where I often feel it's it's lost a lot of its meaning. So, okay. um, so yes, if um, if somebody if you came to me and said I want this to look cinematic, I think that's a jumping off point to then start digging down and go, okay, are, you, are we talking about aspect ratio, or are we talking about um, the, the the characteristics of a film look, or are we talking about lens flares? Are we talking about anamorphic? Um, aberrations, you know, what what aspects of cinematic are we, we looking at? And then deep dive on that to when start. When you were doing this look. feature that you've been most recently on, did you have any sort of technical mental nod in the back of your head to something seeming more like it was a film that might have been cinema shot on film? Or did you just totally embrace digital as sharp and as clean as crisp as away again from staging or, or framing or lighting? Yeah, yeah, we we definitely looked at um, uh, film emulations, and okay. and, um, and we may still come back to using some some very select. In fact, there's one sequence where we we definitely have got a film emulation on on the the grade as, as a starting point, um, but then we've gone a lot further from that starting point. But the the big decision we made was to go for a, the scope aspect ratio, albeit shooting spherical. So. The um, to me that feels very cinematic in terms of a, a movie versus television. So, Jace, as your uh, sort of dumb bumbling client who's using the word cinematic in the uh, meeting, uh, what, are, what where it's are you going? More with often, it? me probably the 
the, I'm probably more the criminal there, especially when you're writing a treatment. It's probably every yeah. every second bloody word is is cinematic, and as as Ben said, it's completely <laughs> lost its meaning, not just maybe slightly. Um, and yes, it probably did have its applications more uh, if people were discussing it back in the days when maybe when we first started doing the Red Center RC podcast was, you know, there was a lot of options there that were a little less cinematic -y in terms of film look and gradually now, you know, in terms of peak camera, everything has essentially is getting close to somewhat, in, unless, you're, uh, unless you're a real pixel peeper, essentially indistinguishable from film. Um, so I think, yeah, the cinematic is, um, is, uh, as Ben says, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a recipe in every department. It's cutting pace. It's, um, or not cutting at all. It's camera movement. And also, you have to choose which which cinema are you talking about. Really, I guess are you talking about are you talking um, uh, period piece, you know, seventies period piece film, or The Matrix, or you know, or uh, Blade Runner, you know. So, um, cinematic. That's a, a yeah. That's that, that's that's a tough one. Um, I obviously, I guess, grew up and you know in the the 80s where everything was and all my sort of hallowed sort of visions of cinema are uh, solidly anamorphic and um, uh, uh, beautiful framing and uh, light and uh, yeah it's a definitely uh, you see I can't even I can't even I can't sum it up it's, it comes down. Obviously, you have to take your lead from the script, I guess. Really. Yeah, but yeah. if I'm your client yeah. and I'm in the meeting with you, maybe I'm saying most of these kids are going to watch this on their phone. As good as the dynamic ranges on that phone, the darn screen is like you know <laughs> seven or um, eight inches. Particularly when you're talking about uh, not so much for feet for features for Ben, oh. but uh, in terms yeah. of commercials, that is the biggest uh, problem at the moment. It's getting harder. For me to uh, suggest even just letterboxing to two, three, five, you know, let alone shooting anamorphic, because um, they go, oh, but what about? Oh, we need to do a one by one. We need to do an Instagram square version. Are we going to frame for that? And uh, do we do separate takes for that? And what about for nine by sixteen? For those of you listening it's, at home, uh, Jason is currently his head on the table. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's horrible because you cannot, you physically cannot frame. Uh, it's like back you have to, to the, work it out in post if you want to do the sixteen by nine four by three thing, but worse. Yes. Oh, it's may, way worse if you want to do sixteen by nine, and then if you imagine, then put us the nine by sixteen in the middle of that, <laughs> which is you know for other nine by sixteen is of course uh, portrait mode. So if you try and cut a portrait out of the middle of something which is quite wide, even sixteen by nine, it's it's impossible. You can't do it. Yeah. And they often say, "Oh, we're going to do separate takes for that and separate shots for that." Well, first of all, no, you don't have money or schedule or time for that. So no. We'll create that in post. We'll just keep it. We'll just keep it in the uh, back of our minds. So that is that that the phone thing is is uh, in a, a small way tearing our world apart a little bit, and at least in at least in commercial, because uh, they you know every framing gets um, has to be seen with a little bit with that eye on, and sometimes just turn on those markings on the camera to say, well, look, this is what this is. This is we're not doing you a separate take. So this is what sixteen by nine. This is what nine by sixteen is going to look like. This is what one by one cut out and centers cut of wow. square is going to look like. You know, are we all happy with that? Great. So sometimes compromises are made, 
but yeah, no, it's, it's, so it becomes quite hard to even say, look, can I please, this would be beautiful, at least letterboxed or shoot anamorphic or something. It's very cinematic. Come on, let me, okay. let us do it. So, and then, so, so it's, it's a battle. It's so, a real battle. So I understand I've hit a nerve there, but let me go to the other part of cinematic, right? Which is uh, quality of light and the lighting. And I'm just going to say, Jason, is there a particular kind of, I mean, notwithstanding obviously using natural light and, and maybe bounce cards, is there a sort of lights that you like to see used on, you know, is there a particular like, oh, well, there are these LEDs that I love, or there are these, is it wide open? How much is that playing? I presume you've got someone doing your lighting for you, but I mean, you're going to still be yeah. thinking about the quality of light. Um, well, what's, uh, well, first of all, probably taking light away more than, um, adding it, you know, um, increasing shadows and just using the natural light in the room, not necessarily the, um, actual light, but keeping the lights outside, only lighting through the windows is another thing to keep it sort of real or natural or cinematic. Um, but failing that actual light wise, I love the, um, you know, the sort of more parabolic umbrella kind of lights, which are beautiful octo, um, uh, five foot octos and things like that, which are, yeah, just like diffusers on the front of things, um, which, yeah, just give a nice big, um, umbrella, uh, light, which can, if positioned right, look, look like a lovely, look like a window. Um, but yeah, LEDs, basically most of the time you're working out of a, 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 not a lighting truck, you're working out of a lighting van because all the lights have got smaller. You're working just with basically almost every single element is a, is a, is a, in the truck is an LED. So um, yeah, and you've got those LEDs. Those roll-up, fold-up roll things yeah, are lovely. Yeah, I was going to say the roll-out ones. Yeah, are, yeah. You get the lovely big aerial lights. Just catching on. Yeah. And I think when they first started to come out at NEBs and things like that, their quality was super dodgy and, you know, the, the actual, you know, um, tungsten looked, everything looked a little bit greenish, but now even the cheapest of those are, are stunningly good. And yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not limited to, it's so, so easy to put it right on the floor, stick it up against the wall, put it right next to the window. You're trying to wrap around a little bit and just, it, they all, they're, they're, you know, up on the visor of a car. They're just there. That's, that's the joy. Whoever came up with those foldable fabric-y kind of LEDs. So, uh, so Ben, I don't know if you remember this, but you and I were shooting at a, a shoot of mine a, a while ago and uh, I, Pick this location had gorgeous, like on two sides, full windows, floor to ceiling, you know, and we're in a kitchen, but you know, the kitchen literally had this massive amount of area lights all the way around. And I was like, turned up on the day, I'm like, this is going to be great. Ben's going to love me. And he was like, right, can we, uh, can we put black uh, card or, or tape over all the windows? And I was like, are you yeah. frigging kidding me? And he's like, yeah, no, I can't control the lighting otherwise. Um, and then, of course, yeah. you decided to put in lovely big area lights because area lights are marvelous things and we love them. And I was like, okay, so. I cannot argue with the quality of your work, sir, because I admire it. But oh my God, I was like, what? So on your on your uh There's plenty of indie, light. On your indie feature <laughs> where you uh was there any particular go-to lights? And and I'm gonna follow oh, a follow-up question on the on the grading yeah. of that stuff. Um LEDs all the way. I mean the, the LEDs that we've got now, and there's there's a lot of different ones to choose from using all sorts of different ones on the film. But the difference that LED lights have made to particularly low budget um, production 
to to be able to work with with daylight without having to correct you know tungsten back to to daylight and the, the huge loss of light level that's involved there or having to work with HMIs um, to be able to work natively with daylight and and soft light and um, the the degree of ease of use of having the low power levels of of the lights is just amazing in terms of what you can do and how much creative control you've got way way bigger than the the impact of digital cameras so the other thing also mike sorry to interrupt is the now almost everything's on sort of like bluetooth wi-fi bus kind of all seem to be singing the same kind of protocol so you can have a one of those um, and obviously most all led um so you can have uh, a set full of lights and you're not having gaffers or best boys running around tweaking everything. They can just be sitting next to you with the iPad and say, I'll bring that one up. And obviously everything's, everything's not just by color. It's all RGB. So you can literally say, warm up the backlight and drop this one down and turn that one bluer and, you know, flicker that one. And so they can just sit there and just have it all on on the iPad. And that doesn't, and that is not dinky. That is not, that is not, you know, you're not uh, sort of. That's not sort of. No, no more milk kid, crates kid, with uh, rolls of gels. Yeah, exactly. Just I mean, not all a thing that anymore. stuff was fun, and you know, paperclip and rubber band technology yeah. was fun in the time. But it was, you know, it's a time. It's a uh, a time sink. You know, I just yep. literally have to run over and move and tweak something. Or, you know, so literally to have someone standing by right right beside you and looking at the same monitor as you, and you know, they can also uh, that has in a way handed over a lot of obviously it's also always been hand in hand gaffer and, and cinematographers always yeah you know, the gaffer's always been part cinematographer but all the more now they're looking at a what you see is what you get monitor with an ipad with full control of all the lights you can be i as a director and cinematographer i can be handling directing as well and i can look over and they've lit the thing and i can do a few little tweaks and we go but that that joy all of that bluetooth and wi-fi stuff on set now is fantastic and uh and that's that's that's, that's everybody that's ari doing it everyone's doing yeah. that hey um so ben i was going to ask you about grading this stuff because uh like the quality of light um is sort of one thing but there's actually a technical quality going on here that in terms of uh frequency spikes and stuff how how do you find grading when you if you have to completely light with like LEDs, are you finding that yep. all the frequency responses are really good these days or are they still a bit, you know, producing odd skin tones here and there? They're pretty good these days. Like there's, uh, they're, they're pretty solid really. Um, there's odd lamps here and there. You get um, some spikes, but really it's it's nothing, nothing that causes me any stress at all. It's, uh, it's, that's, that's come a long way in a short space of time. So again, assuming it that, used to be a big problem. Yeah, it used to be. Yeah, assuming that we were after, a, say, a big area light. Like, what is your like? Jace was talking about some of the bounce stuff that uh, and some of the big um, uh, foldouts. But what are you doing? I mean, obviously, it's different on a spot and a and a. Yeah. But yeah, on a area light, what are you doing? Oh, just uh, LEDs. <laughs> like even just bounced off um, some uh, what do we call um, calico. Right, it's a calico cloth. Bounce a bunch of LED lamps off that. Um, that you know, it was really simple stuff, um, but beautiful, beautiful light. Because LEDs should be able to give you more light per watt, right? So you should be able to get oh, up the levels enough. More. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
and that's the thing. Like you can, at that point, bounce it around quite a lot, um, and just running off house power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like not having to have all of the extra things that multiply up from sticking a bunch of what in the old days might have been redheads or whatever, where you suddenly go, yeah. "Oh, that's five hundred watts. That's a thousand. And now I need special power. And now I don't want to trip the. Now I don't want to scratch the floor by having the cables run through from the generator yeah. from the thing from the thing." Yeah. Well, again, the big thing Scales. from my point of view is, you know, you, you might be running a, um, you know, a, a 2K tungsten light, bouncing that off something. Um, but if you're doing that in a room with daylight coming in as well or where you're just glimpsing something out the window, then, okay, you're going to put um, a, a blue daylight correction gel on that. You're going to lose, you know, more than half your, your light level um, straight away like that. So suddenly bouncing doesn't become a viable thing anymore. Yep. Whereas the, the LEDs, it's not just that they give you so much output, um, but that you can be working natively at daylight color temperature. Um, it just makes things so, so much easier. Look, we're almost out of time, but I would be remiss being me if I didn't ask you. <laughs> I know this isn't your uh, primary thing, either of you, but uh, when it comes to shooting any kind of effects work or concepts and discussions around virtual production, I might start with you, Jason. I was just curious to get your impression. Is that stuff? Uh, the devil or is that stuff that stuff you're interested in or is it like not on the radar where, where do you sit with that stuff um it's it's uh, my ears are pricked up i'm i'm listening and, and waiting for something obviously here in australia we're slowly getting a few options but i shoot a bit of car stuff and i'm waiting to see a demo that makes me think yeah i could pitch this for for a car commercial for a limited sort of car commercial or for driving stuff um yeah it hasn't yeah i've i'm i'm interested but i think there's very specific uh uses for it particularly in terms of commercial stuff is very very specific uses um yeah i'm 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 alert but um not uh, i haven't uh, really deep dived into actually using it yet and if i can just follow up on that if if you had a preference like What's your view just as a director and as a, obviously a DOP, but as, as you know, like, do you like doing studio work? Do you like doing stuff in that kind of constrained uh, controlled setup or, you know, given any preference, I'm on a light plane to the back of Burke with a light rig and a small crew. Oh, look, I think I've always sort of been more of the sort of keep it real, sort of do it in camera, smaller crew kind of thing. Um, but it's undeniable the appeal of something stuff that we've seen with Mandalorian, etc., where you can essentially have uh, magic out all day long. Uh, but that's obviously, as from a director point of view, and the stress of obviously, and even you know, I mean, you can spend a little bit of money heading off to go back or beyond and fly into a small crew, but if you get weathered or sunset only goes last for so long, if you you know, at some stage, there's going to be this sort of false economy where, yeah, if you have a lot of stuff and you want to make it look at, a, you know, a certain a certain light, consistent light, then yeah, eventually the the somehow technology, the tables will turn and it's gonna it's gonna make sense. But uh, for me, probably I prefer to the scope of um, going there and doing it for real, but with a smaller crew over more days, maybe. But yeah, it's a. a, a as things get perfected, maybe uh, would be amazing. Undeniable to not say that as a, a cinematographer as well, to not have 
utter control of the light and have it stay there all day long would be incredible. Yeah. I guess I guess for me, your work has always had an authenticity to it, which is much more likely to be something that would be easy to get uh, in, in a real location. But, hey, yeah, Ben, yeah, you, same thing. Like, so. what, what do you think about this idea of, like, is it coming to your mm. radar? It's not something that um, that is really been a major factor for me yet but it's something I'm watching very very closely because I think it is going to be a big part of all production moving forward there's just so many advantages of it uh you know it doesn't replace getting out in the real world um you know there's there's still um as Jason was saying there's still huge value in that in 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 the authenticity of being out in the in the real locations but um, there's there's a lot of things become possible with a virtual production environment that that just aren't possible or aren't practical otherwise. So yeah. I think it's 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 not going away. Is it it's in your is it in your DNA to get up at five a.m. and stand in a park or in the cold, <laughs> uh, getting the sun to come up? Is that like that must? I think it just appeals to you, like as a bloke. I think it does. <laughs> hey, um, before we go with an egg and bacon roll. Exactly, yeah. egg and bacon roll. <laughs> hey, uh, so we've got to finish like up, but Ben, <laughs> tell me, when is this feature that we've been discussing? Are we allowed to say what the name of it is or when will it come out? Or? Yeah. yeah, so the, the film is called Dark Noise. Uh, it's a thriller. And, uh, yeah, it'll be out uh, probably next year. Excellent. And is there, a, if somebody wants yeah. to contact you or connect up with you, is there a good way for them to do that? Um, what's a website or anything or? Um, or just through um, uh, Instagram or Twitter, Ben Allen ACS. Excellent. Uh, is an easy way, yeah. And Jason, last time you were down at a, uh, I have to ask you this question, last time you were down at a Seapool filming at 5 a.m., when was that? Ah, oh, a little while ago. Again, I think the peak camera thing kind of killed that. Every All the tests started to look, the tests started to look the same. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, they were more than tests. Been a while. I still like to go down there. Now I'm, now I'm going down there to shoot stills to explore the joy of uh, just taking photographs of water and framing it up big and sticking it on the wall and sitting back and go, hmm, I did that. Excellent. And so if uh, people want to uh, connect with you and uh, maybe, uh, you know, see what you're up to, what, where's a good place for them to go? Uh, my website, my reel, uh, would be wingrove.film and uh, Jace Wingrove on Instagram or Wingrove on Twitter. I can't tell you how much fun it's been chatting with you guys. It's just been awesome. I feel uh, spoilt rotten. It's one of the uh, you know huge advantages of what I do that I get to hang out with people occasionally. Not that I've been able to hang out with you guys enough given COVID and stuff, but Absolutely. thank you so nice much for out. taking your time to talk. Thanks, Mike. It's, it's been great. Pleasure, great fun. Mike. Good to see you. All right, guys, and thank you so much for listening. Uh, as I said, this is part of a series that we're doing where we're talking to professionals that have literally nothing to sell and nothing to push uh, in the sense that we just want an honest discussion around the topics. And we've got such a good reaction to the ones we've done so far. If you'd like to hear more in the series, let us know. You can always email me, mikes at fxguide.com. On behalf of myself and John Montgomery, thanks so much for listening. Catch you next time. See ya. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.